Welcome to another episode of the Being and Doing podcast, where I try to create a space uh, for and bring you the story of the unique minds that are all around us. I'm very excited about my guest today because I'm certain that her story will challenge, inspire, and stimulate your being. And today I'm speaking with Sara Kuburic, also known as the Millennial Therapist. And there are two impressions that I want to share with you because before we start the interview. One is that when I first encountered Sarah's work, I was struck by the level of maturity, responsibility, and accountability that is present in everything she creates. And a very personal reason I'm interested in bringing your Sarah's story is that she's coming from the same region as me, from the Balkans, where our destinies and lives are marked with war and loss. And I was impressed at such a young age, she has managed to work through those struggles and find her purpose and creative voice. So I'm very curious to, uh, to hear how her path lead her where she is today. So welcome, Sarah. Oh, thank you so much. That was such a sweet way to start the podcast. I really <laughs> appreciate your kindness and the compliments. <laughs> and I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I am actually really excited for this conversation as well. So let's just kick it off with uh, just a simple, what are several words that you identify yourself with? <laughs> I like how this is the simple. Um, <laughs> empathetic creative, uh, motivated. Mm. Well, actually, let's go with the creative part. Uh, I'm mm. very curious about how people release their creativity. And was that something that came easy to you? Or is it something that you somehow had to build up to? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, when I talk about creativity, I talk about writing. That's a creative outlet for me. And it's always come quite naturally. I'm really terrible at art as in like painting, drawing, pottery, terrible. Um, I used to dance and that used to be also a source of creativity for me. But I, I would say that it's definitely a skill I developed over time, but it was also something I inherently just gravitated towards and was naturally somewhat good at if I can say that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I'm curious, if you think about success, because I consider you being someone who lives a successful life, when do you think you were the first time aware of the concept of success? You mean like in, in my life overall? When did I yes. grasp? Yes. Um, I would have to say it was probably in an academic setting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that really I, I was so immersed in academia for so long that I do think that my first taste or concept of success were grades or mm -hmm. accolades from professors. And so that's kind of sad um, to think about. I don't know why that just it, it doesn't sit well with me that that's what would define success for a young woman. But um, I think definitely that's where it started was academia. Hmm. And then and opposing to that, when was the first time that you felt like innerly successful? Um, <laughs> it would definitely, I mean, again, I've had 
moments throughout my 20s where I probably felt successful, but all those moments were um, in instances where I felt like I was living out my purpose, like what I was doing was super meaningful and that who I was was coming across whatever I was producing. So it didn't really matter if it was, you know, a master thesis or working on my dissertation or the fact that, you know, my millennial therapist picked up, it was the fact that whatever I was doing was meaningful and it resonated with others. And that's, I think, when I was like, oh, this is successful. Hmm. And now you are talking about academia and writing your dissertation. And I guess many people would know that, but maybe you want to share actually what you're doing. Oh, sure. Yeah. So I'm a PhD candidate, um, hopefully defending soon. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I am attending Sydney Freud University in Vienna under supervision of Alfred Langley, um, who actually personally worked with Viktor Frankl, um, which is really cool. Viktor Frankl is the father of logotherapy. And then he and Alfred co-created existential analysis, which is what I specialize in. So it's a real privilege to get to work with him. Um, and what I'm studying right now is moral injury um, in infidelity. So that's my dissertation work. Maybe that was way too much, but there you go. You have no. it. <laughs> no, no, no. That's exactly what we are interested in. So let's let's jump right in into moral injury. And I told you before mm. we started that that's something I'm really interested in, and and infidelity. And and let's let's. What's uh, your take on it? Sure. So moral injury um, is a fairly new concept within psychology. I would say. I think it was coined in 2009. And so mm -hmm. there is still some debate regarding its, you know, ultimate definition. Um, and is it a diagnosis? Should it be a diagnosis? Right now, it's not a medical diagnosis, not a psychological diagnosis, but it's an experience. It's something that happens to us when we violate our own morals, ethics, um, or values, and the consequences mm -hmm. of that. And it first was studied within the military context because they were seeing that soldiers were coming back with PTSD. And although they were treating PTSD, soldiers were still having quite like they were still committing suicide. There were high rates of suicide and they couldn't understand why. And this is where moral injury came about that. Yes, maybe there's PTSD and trauma, but hand in hand, it came this moral component um, and this mm -hmm. moral trauma some would identify. And so I got fascinated with the concept because I've lived through wars and I never felt like I had the, you know, PTSD trauma symptoms, but I felt like it really broke me to an extent and really changed me. Um, and so I think honestly, that's where the curiosity came from. And then I went, this is such a beautiful concept. It was starting to, you know, be explored in nursing as well. And so I thought, in what other contexts do we violate our own ethics and morals? And then I thought, well, in an infidelity, um, not for everybody, but a lot of people who do cheat may actually have consequences. <laughs> we always think of the victim, which is fair enough, because of course they're you know, going to feel betrayed and, and there's just so much hardship that comes with being cheated on. But what about the people cheating? Is there a trauma? And so I started to get very curious. And that's kind of where first I studied it in romantic relationships and like domestic violence. And then for my PhD, I did infidelity. And it was the most beautiful, heartbreaking research I've ever done. Maybe you want to share the outcomes before I go, um, sure. if possible, <laughs> before I go into, into the next question. 
Yeah. So, I mean, the analysis, I mean, it's so big, but I, I course, think what yeah, was yeah. really fascinating was to, to meet individuals and to understand their experience of what it's like to harm someone that they genuinely cared about and what it was like to harm themselves as a consequence. Um, and it's fascinating because for most, I think this is the snippet of the research, is it's not that they were bored and they did it. <laughs> they were striving for a sense of vitality. They were trying to reconnect with themselves. And it's really interesting by trying to reconnect with them, their, their being, they actually did something that transgressed their being. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I call that the paradox of the whole experience. They were hoping that they would feel something. Um, and in the end, they really did feel something, but it was not what they expected to feel. And, you know, for most of my participants, they found their way back, but it was really not about the other individual. It was about themselves and, and their own journey away from who they are and, and kind of creating and going back to who they are. And so that mm -hmm. was kind of a really interesting um, finding within like the moral injury and the healing from moral injury. In a way, uh, moral injury in itself can be a trauma response. Yes, that's very, yeah, it can yeah. be. And I mean, even moral injury, depending if it's, you know, actualized, if at what stage do you get it? Because the symptoms can be identical to PTSD. Um, and mm -hmm. it's very fascinating that you can have symptoms such as, you know, withdrawals and, and whatever it is just, and it's not just, but it's just from violating your own morality. That really tells us that as humans, morality is a really important mm -hmm. component. And that's something that psychology yeah. doesn't always talk about as much as it should, but I do think that we're holistic and moral beings. And I think when people think about identity, but don't talk about morality, you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I'm guessing your podcast name comes a bit from Heidegger. So you would understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And actually I was listening recently to a podcast from um, a, a war uh, officer in Serbia, which is in Serbia. Oh. And he described something that uh, I was amazed by. He described someone who had a clear, and he eventually became a psychologist so he described that there was a person who had an antisocial personality disorder very clearly. Mm. That was a person um, that eventually came back from the war. It was somehow, but he liked him, the guy who is describing him. He came after the war and wanted to talk about the war. Although we would expect even someone with antisocial characteristics would not have empathy, not have everything. And eventually this person killed themselves. So that's like that, that's how taxing. Wow. Yeah. Even for someone who it would we would say is on the psychopathic spectrum or the sociopathic spectrum is. So I find it fascinating that you talk about how strong the moral code and the ethical code is inside of yeah. us. And and I'm just wondering, um, what, what kind of analysis or like what kind of uh, research uh, methods you're using uh, to I understand love how nerdy this? Because, this is good. Yeah, yeah. I, I use hermeneutic phenomenology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I interviewed... Maybe you can explain. So I, I do understand what that is, but maybe you can explain for the, <laughs> for the audience. What are you doing to me? <laughs> um, Sorry. No, it's okay. So it's a qualitative... Um, 
method and I interviewed eight individuals. Um, the interviews were quite extensive. And then I proceeded to do phenomenology or hermeneutic phenomenology as a way of analyzing text. So hermeneutics is, in, is, um, is the way to analyze text. And what makes it really unique and almost difficult is the way they and the extent to which you have to engage with it. And you mm. read and reread text and you identify meanings and descriptions and you try to really the, the whole entire point and I'm just really simplifying this but the entire point is for someone to be able to read that transcript read my dissertation and know what it's really like to be that person what it's really like to have that lived experience and it's not about generalizing it because I can't generalize it it's about that particular person and honoring what that story is that narrative is and so um mm -hmm. it's a really beautiful way to to kind of it's an intimate way to approach text and it's really amazing um to see eight people and obviously you look for themes later on and you can see what mm -hmm. themes emerge and are there themes within you know the the eight participants that align um and that's all great, but I think what I really like about the method is just honoring each person's experience and not projecting to it, not adding theory to it. It's just allowing it to be and to see what the person has actually told you. I don't know if I did justice to hermeneutic phenomenology in that, but I, I'm just trying to make it super simple. Yeah. I, I actually really like how you, I think that's why probably your page is so famous because you are very capable of making very complicated things easy so um this this reminded me of something I wanted to ask you from an which I heard in another podcast Dostoevsky at 13 or reading Dostoevsky <laughs> at 13 because what you just described is actually what Dostoevsky was very very good at <laughs> so good at yeah, so I'm very curious to to hear what brought you to him because I was doing very similar things. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, I think when I moved to Canada at age nine, it was very well culturally shocking, but I, I think no one could relate to kind of the 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 tragedy or the depth. And I, I always say I felt very robbed of my childhood, very robbed of like the naivety that you have as a child and I I experienced and I saw so much suffering that I needed to relate to someone or something and I think Dostoevsky mm -hmm. came in first of all like obviously being Serbian like Dostoevsky something yeah. that like every household has <laughs> like, yeah. um, and so I, I felt like oh this is like it was me trying to connect to my roots and trying to find literature that related to me because a lot of nine-year-olds or 13-year-olds were reading very different types of books in North America than, than and I couldn't really resonate with that or I felt like something was missing. I wasn't being seen. Mm -hmm. And so from a very early age, I think I was trying to find that resonance and obviously Dostoevsky is a bit intense and I don't think I fully grasped it at age 13, uh, but my love for him remained. And I mean, mm -hmm. he's also considered an existentialist, which is kind of funny because now I'm an existential therapist. So I do definitely think that the influence was really strong, even if I wasn't quite aware of it at the time. And I find it actually very fascinating because I stayed in the country and you leave the country. I left. Uh, and, How was that? and the lived experience is very similar. 
that's that's mm. what I because although um, although for me it was you know within the country where people have lived through this, I still haven't had the connection. I still haven't had the, someone to talk about my experience because, as you mm. know, trauma or pain is not something people generally more no. openly talk about. So yeah. like the, now when you described it like this, what I realized, well, that was my first psychotherapist. It was someone with whom I could kind of, for the yeah. first time, share my pain. <laughs> I love it. Dostoevsky was our first therapist. Yes. <laughs> so good. Yeah. So, so actually, I, uh, since it's not something that's openly talked about, maybe we could touch about the war trauma and your experiences fleeing the war and what does that mean and how did that really look like if you would describe in actually very same way as you would as your um, um, participants would describe infidelities <laughs> well I mean that's a very long conversation but yeah. um, I think what made the war difficult I guess people would assume when you're younger, you might not be as impactful as if you were like a teenager. My siblings were teenagers when it occurred and I wasn't, but I honestly think it was kind of the other way around where they had the context at least. And I think I was awkwardly in that age where I didn't understand what was happening, which is part of why it became so traumatic for me. Um, mm -hmm. I think a lot of families like mine um, separated during the, the war. I think after a month or two, I actually went to Bosnia mm -hmm. and I spent time in Bosnia. Um, but as a child, all I remember is the first night actually of bombings, um, the sirens went off and we were mm -hmm. leaving the house to go into the bunker and they hit really close to where I was living. And I remember my very first memory of the war was standing there and just seeing a cloud of fire and just like a rush of hot air. And mm. it made the experience so real right off the bat because it was very threatening right off the bat. I think some people, you know, maybe the target weren't as close as to where they were living. So it was almost entertaining. I hear people talk about it as like, oh, it was interesting. I got to skip school and we hung out and played cards. And I think I didn't have that experience just because it became real so fast. Mm -hmm. um, and there were so many instances, I mean, trying to not flee the country, but leave the country was quite traumatic for me. Um, and then being separated from my parents because they had to stay in Serbia and the siblings left. And so, you know, as a child, I don't even know how old I was, seven, I don't know. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it, it's it's a lot of unknowns it's a lot of fear and you do you're a sponge you you take on you can tell that everyone is really scared you're in public shelters depending where you are and it's dirty and it's smelly and there's a lot of strangers around you and people are upset and it's you never know when it's going to end and um I think the biggest thing is the sirens went off all the time I think it was mm -hmm. like people write about this war as a psychological warfare as in they just exhausted people so much because you were just worried, ready to run all the time. And I think that was probably the hardest. It was just kind of like people talk about COVID as like the invisible enemy. That's a bit what it felt like in my experience too, although it was very visible with the bombings, but it was kind of like, where are they? <laughs> are they coming? And so that was kind of my my experience and what I remember, but I didn't stay in Serbia the entire time. I actually left mm -hmm. like halfway through. 
Um, mm -hmm. And then I was in Bosnia hearing like planes fly over Bosnia to go to Serbia. As a child, that's obviously not something you want to hear either because you're like, they're going where mommy and daddy are. <laughs> and like, mm -hmm. and that's a very scary and just like, um, yeah, unnerving thing for a child. I don't know, mm -hmm. what was your experience like? Yeah, uh, thanks for asking, actually. Um, so the first war I was, I'm born in the 90s. So um, basically... <laughs> It was it was a very traumatic uh, entering because of my parents just moved from Macedonia to Serbia. My dad is wow. a military person, oh, so wow. uh, he's a military doctor. So I actually don't really that's that's another injury if you want it. This I don't really know what he lived through uh, mm. because it's not something we talk about. Yeah. Um, I just know that it happened and I was very small, uh, but my body really, like my body keeps the score from that period. Yeah. And then the bombing in 99, uh, I don't know which, which time you fl flew, flee, flew away, but um, the bombing in 99, I did have that description of like, oh, you know, we didn't have school and, and things like this. Mm. But then there is a very vivid moment where you say exactly the same thing you say, where it became very figural for me, was yeah. uh, where I was seeing the flashes on the yeah. um, sky and then my dad had to leave immediately because at that moment they were, you know... Um, they were living, uh, um, he was with us. And I think mm. that exactly what you describe is this fear of, well, I might not see my dad again. Yeah. And, and these are the things that I, I did not necessarily hear the bombs falling close to me, but there was obviously, there were these images that were on the, on the screen. TV. And, and I think also the most vivid image, and it's still on YouTube, is uh, when they bombed, and it was not the military target, which is also even more scary, when they bombed the national television. And then, yeah. you, you know, you can see these horrific images and stuff like this. And, you know, seeing that I was then nine years old, um, yeah. I think that was quite intense. And then the crazy thing, I think, for me is maybe that was like that for you is it ended and we never processed it it just oh yeah it's like yeah we live now through let's this move on and less yeah. like life moves on and yeah. you were like i just feel like i'm from then on until i went to my do my phd in switzerland and kind of had kind of removed myself from that collective unconscious if you want to mm. call it like this yeah um only from only then I started processing that trauma, I think, because until mm. then you, you I watched all these movies and, you know, Le Pasero, Le Pugore and all these yeah. very, very difficult movies. And that was my reality. And I thought I felt like that it was like a constantly lived neurosis, basically. <laughs> um, so I, I'm just so curious, like what of this you can relate to? No, I mean, all of it. I. I think even though I left, it was kind of like, let's start anew, like <laughs> let's just move on. And 
there was even some romanticizing because obviously when you're an immigrant that's hard so it was almost like romanticizing the past and it's like really we're romanticizing and we like lived because I was born in Bosnia during that war and then (laughs) right before that war so like my family's been through so much in a decade and it's like and we're thinking of going back like what um Mm -hmm. and so it was very interesting I don't think I genuinely processed it until grad school when I was trained to be a therapist when I began to see my own therapist because it was kind of like a part of me that was locked away is a part of me that I thought I had to normalize I think it was a part of me that really scared me Um, and I also think that there were people that weren't as impacted by this as I was and I've you know sometimes you talk to people like oh how was it for you and they're like oh it wasn't so bad like I played basketball with my friends and then I was like oh maybe it's in my head Um, now Mm. it's also questionable how okay they actually are (laughs) but I think there were enough narratives for me to be like oh maybe I'm just being too sensitive maybe like this is (laughs) fine you know like maybe maybe the war trauma wasn't a big deal (laughs) (laughs) which is so insane but I do think there's a bit of gaslighting and a bit of that cultural trauma that's just kind of like this is reality and if you cannot handle reality then you're weak it's not like oh yeah that was hard it was like no, like you, you're get over it sort of thing, or don't talk Mm -hmm. about it. And I think anything we don't talk about just gains power. And so for me, just like you said, like you had to go to Switzerland for me, I almost had to like, you know, start getting trained as a therapist and see my own therapist to be like, Oh, wait, this has actually informed me for a very, very long time. And I did not see it. Um, And so Mm -hmm. it took a long time for me to face it. So I resonate with that, even though I was outside the country. And also I had no one to process it with. Like, obviously when you were there, people didn't want to talk about it. But when I'm in Canada, people don't want to talk about it because they don't even know what happened. Mm. Or there's also a really strong narrative that, you know, rightly or wrongly so, that Serbians are the bad guys. (laughs) So if you, you know, so if you're like, oh, you know, I lived through it. And then they're like, oh yeah, weren't you hurting other people? And then, and then it becomes a political discussion rather than like, yes, all that might have its place, but I was a nine-year-old child that like was scared for her life. And that conversation gets overlooked a lot because of politics. And so I think that's also another reason why like I tried and Mm -hmm. then I was like, you know what? I'm not going to swear on this podcast, but F it. Like I'm not going to try anymore because me trying to share my experience is not landing. So that was also a part of it. Yeah, I mean that that's a that's a that's a really interesting thing you are saying because I do find it really weird as someone who has lived, watched all this movie that I mentioned, and and mm-hmm. then being labeled as a bad guy, which you know, I have friends which told me how the war really looked like and how mm-hmm. dirty it was in mm-hmm. in for all the guys. And and even in this podcast I mentioned to you, there this guy actually said how Tudjman and Milosevic became friends and how sad Tudjman was when Milosevic went to prison. Wow. And, and yeah, it's scary. I mean, it's really, really scary. It's really scary. And, and in that sense, I, I just, yeah, I do find it so sad that we prevent healing uh, and actually we prevent, like we, we prevent the possibility that maybe other bigger problems will arise eventually yeah. because we haven't dealt with with the whole trauma that that was that was part of the 
and there's just mm-hmm. so much compacted trauma it's just yes. one war after the next after the next and again without going yeah. into politics because although i'm from that region i'm not going to claim to fully understand what's unfolding i understand that my perspective is also incredibly biased because of yeah. me living yeah. through that experience but it's just it's almost we haven't had a break enough for for people to heal and that's really sad to see of what it looks like when generation after generation after generation has been exposed to such severe trauma um and then i'm curious about existential therapy and its methods because it's i'm studying gestalt therapy so i'm I'm very gestalt therapy I actually love existential therapy, so oh, we can cool. exchange. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So, so uh, I'm I'm just very curious. Uh, how are you formed as an existential therapist, and what are the kind of techniques that you use in your everyday work, which are part of the framework that that you're using? Yeah. So. Um... I think to understand existential analysis, you also kind of have to understand phenomenology to a degree because mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. it uses phenomenology quite um, extensively um, to be present with the client, to see what the client is actually saying. Um, and so that's a really important piece of it. And existential analysis has four fundamental motivations or four pillars of existence. And so as a therapist, you will often conceptualize cases based on those four pillars. When you talk to an individual, Mm -hmm. you'll see, is there a pillar that's, you know, feeling a bit weak or lacking? Um, um, And then, and then that kind of gives you a map. It's almost like a, a little graph in your head where you're like, oh, it's pillar Mm -hmm. one. And then there, what are all the things that we work for pillar one? So it, it, it does have structure which is really beautiful but it's also very open very phenomenological um but Mm -hmm. i like that he has that structure when it comes to conceptualizing cases um Mm -hmm. and it's very very incredibly helpful um Mm -hmm. and we always look at it as like a table with four feet is that what it's called yeah four legs yeah um four legs yeah wow um and you know your existence your sense of fulfillment is going to feel very skewed or uncomfortable if one of the legs is cut (laughs) the whole thing falls off balance so it's it's not that you ever work on just one of these pillars because you know if if one of the pillars is really struggling there's probably one that's overcompensating and there's probably another one that's cracking um but yeah that's kind of how it works I have no idea if that made sense but that's what you're getting yeah no I actually do really like it and and uh, because Gerstadt is also based on phenomenology and we did explain what it oh. is uh, then then it's uh, I think it, it fits very well so I'm curious maybe talking about what are the people that influenced you um, in your journey so far in being who you oh are gosh. which I, I understand there will be many but I don't know if you want to single out some or just said, say something general I mean I think there's different phases in my life where different people influenced me um I think when I was younger it was definitely people uh closer to me so family members or family friends always older individuals that were kind of like mentors um professors had a really, I'm such a nerd, professors really had a big impact um, on me. And I think, you know, Alfred Langley was such a huge influence um, and I'm such a big fan. (laughs) So I would say definitely how I conceptualize um, my clinical work and the way I'm writing my book and, and just the way I approach psychology and philosophy was really 
was informed by him and he's just the the most knowledgeable supportive sweetest human on the planet um and that's mm-hmm. always so wonderful is for someone who is so amazing um to be so considerate and so supportive and mm-hmm. and give you compliments you know <laughs> and you're like what mm-hmm. um so i i think having people that really value you even though they're clearly better <laughs> I think that I was very lucky where I've had just the nicest support and people really like acknowledging um your passion and your talent and your intent and that was that was really wonderful and I I felt like they wanted me to be the best version of myself rather than emulate them or emulate someone else I think that's the thing with mentors is mm-hmm. when they try to kind of make you into a mini them Mm-hmm. And I've just been so lucky to have so many mentors that did not do that, but really wanted me to play to my strength. Um, and that was amazing. And yeah, I actually really like what you're talking about, because uh, there was when I came from Serbia, which I was even in that setting, quite traumatized, not being mm-hmm. fully able to express myself. And then I came um, to Switzerland and I had a very supportive supervisor and I was surprised by he's actually saying hi to the cleaning ladies. And Mm. it's really weird thing to say. And people laughed at me for saying this, but being someone who is used to, and this is not to diminish all the mentors I have in Serbia, but I also had really difficult experiences there. So I definitely understand that feeling where, you know, a mentor is really uh, being there for you as you are and not as they want you to be. Yeah. That's and um, I'm curious what are, what is this is an interesting question taking into account everything we talked about. Uh, what is um, a truth about reality that you were unwilling to accept for the longest time? Uh, truth about reality that it's not black and white. <laughs> I can relate to that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it took me a while to get comfortable with the gray. And I think humanity mm-hmm. happens in the gray. So good thing I did. But I think it with the narratives, especially coming from more like good guys, bad guys, it's just everything became so fragmented, so black and white. Um, that that's how I perceived to see the world. And I don't think that did me any good for a very long time. And so I think realizing that the world is somewhat absurd and beautiful and hard and and great all at the same time mm-hmm. that sometimes there is no right answer and that sometimes two people can do the exact same thing and for one person will be right for the other will be wrong um and now I love this stuff <laughs> I dwell in it yeah. <laughs> I bathe in it but I I think that that's a reality that I resisted for a really really long time Mm, I can definitely relate to that (laughs) I think that's uh, to be honest I think that is what trauma does I Mm. think that split in black and white is is really what what trauma does um and what do you uh, so actually there was one thing that I really was curious about from your old podcast is the self-growth versus self-acceptance and I really I really liked your take on it and I would just maybe want it to be mentioned also in this podcast sure I think that a lot of people um strive for self-growth and then they forget to self-accept 
mm-hmm. or they think they're two mutually exclusive things that, you know, you need to be perfect before you can self-accept. And I don't think there is growth without self-acceptance. I think you need to accept where you are at. I think the only way to really be supportive and to provide yourself the assistance that you need to grow is to, to, to accept who you are. That was not articulate, but you know what I mean is to really kind of sit there and, and, and accept the fact that this is the version of you that you need to love and support. And it would be like having a child and saying, I will love you once the report card is out and you have all A's. Or mm-hmm. I will, to your partner, I will love you once you get a six pack. It's like the most absurd things that you would never say. And so yet we do this, we try to earn our own love, uh, learn our own mm-hmm. acceptance. And I, I think that we are allowed to, to do both. We're allowed to accept ourselves and still go, I need to grow. I need to take responsibility for myself. I need to heal. I need to strive. So I'm going to do that while sitting in this place of acceptance. Um, and so I think... Mm-hmm. We just need to stop swapping them as a society where we're just like waiting for the self. I call it the self-improvement trap where it's like waiting for this moment that you're so improved that now you can finally respect or accept or love yourself. And I don't think we're ever going to really feel that. So it's important to practice offering it um, even in our darkest moments because we still need to accept that this is who we are, even though we made a mistake. And I think there's a difference between accepting yourself and accepting or justifying your mistakes. So I think people can still go, I really, I accept myself. I love myself. And I really screwed up. Like that action was not okay. So it's Mm -hmm. not about this like fuzzy blanket of like denial and justification. It's not about that. It's just going, okay, this is who I am. I'm accepting the reality of who I am. And I'm going to maybe offer myself grace if you want to go as far as that. But I, I am not going to accept that this is how I want to act every time. So behaviors in yourself are not the same thing. This is what I really like because you talk on your page a lot about the end sentences. So it's this end and some things don't necessarily need to be mutually exclusive. And what you're describing, sorry, I don't want to interrupt you. um, It sounds also like a little bit the paradoxical theory of change in Gestalt. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like the gray that, you know, I just talked it about is the accepting. Gray. It yeah. is the gray. And I think as a society, we really like things black and white. And if we do that, we're always going to almost look at, look at the negative. Um, if we can't mm-hmm. accept that there is positive with the negative, because chances of just having the positive, I would say with human nature are pretty slim. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. That's optimistic. So- being I I kind of think it's a really nice note to kind of end this part of the conversation Mm -hmm. Uh, I just have a small question it's like I saw your tattoo and I was curious about it (laughs) um so I don't want to pronounce it because it's in French but etre and um Uh, it means like being and doing (laughs) it's like being and doing and this is why I'm on your podcast because that's exactly why I got it (laughs) um and so yeah, I I got that because this is during the time I was trying to reconcile my past and my future and and the grayness of the world and what it meant to truly exist. And it was kind of at the precipice of my existential journey. Um, and I really wanted, wanted that as a statement to remind myself of what it is to be and to always be and to exist and and um 
be aligned with my being. And so it's a very nerdy tattoo, but that's why I got it. It's literally from like Heidegger, except I decided to get it in French, like, I guess, Sartre-ish, because I yeah. did not like the German, um, <laughs> it, it looked uglier. So I was like, now nah, let's go French. <laughs> you went for the aesthetic the, Heidegger. That was the aesthetic. But in reality, okay. the reason why I got it was initially because of Heidegger's theory. And then obviously, I mean, Sartre as well. Yeah. So I just want to ask you uh, several rapid fire questions to wrap sure. up. What is a book, a present or an idea that you like to gift the most? Experiences. I will always mm -hmm. take someone out for an experience or a trip or something we can do together. Mm -hmm. And what is an absurd thing about you that not many people know about? <laughs> absurd thing I can't think of anything except the fact that I cannot stand my hair being wet and if someone touches my hair while it's wet I will lose my mind so this is like a <laughs> sensory thing where like I hate having wet hair I hate people touching my wet hair no wet hair for Sarah it's such a weird thing but yes okay is that um, absurd enough I don't know <laughs> yes yes no I mean honestly this I always say to people it's my favorite question and the kind okay. of answers that come sometimes really surprise me sometimes are really interesting but it's always a good good answer good. Uh, what kind of compliments do you like to receive about my work mm -hmm. so like about the impact that I cr create or if someone really resonated with something I feel like any compliment where I feel like they really see me or that we connected over something or something really resonated, I feel like those were the best. Mm -hmm. And the last one is which are things that you have become more and which uh, become less important as you have gotten older? Um, less trying to be social. <laughs> um I just I'm such an introvert um to probably a pretty extreme extent um I have friends but like trying to meet new people trying to always socialize or I love deep conversations so with my friends I can talk all the time but trying to have like chit chat and like just casual that's just something I has become less and less important to me and something I don't put as much effort in um so that and more important uh social support I think I just learned over time to let people support me and take care of me I used to think that that was the weakness and I needed to be very independent um yep and um eventually I realized no and it's also absurd and I think the more I'm doing in my field of work um the more I have on my plate, the more I'm growing, it's impossible to grow without support. It really is like I would cap out if I was just doing it by myself or if I didn't have people to help me out along the way, be that emotionally or socially or, or actually at work. <laughs> like if I, if I didn't have someone answering my emails, I'd be screwed, you know? Um, so I just, I just learned that support is one of the most important things for me right now. And uh, yeah, that's what I value more and more each day. So actually, I really want this yeah, go for one it. last question is that support um, so it's something that I'm also very curious about. How did you build uh, your your business and how did you bring in people and make risks to grow? So I don't have many people. I only have one other 
person now who who's helping out um <laughs> and that's because I have a hard time delegating and and letting go so I would say that most of my support is like I don't know if this sounds so entitled, but sometimes if I have a really busy time, I used to do like campaigns and things and I would be up from like 2 a.m., start working, you know, family will come and drop off some dishes and I'll, you know, have a friend be like, let's go get a massage and I'll have friends come and like force me to watch a movie so that I stopped working. <laughs> um, so for me, support is really, mm -hmm. if I feel supported outside of work, I'm very happy to do the work and I, I'm fairly good at not biting off more than I can handle. And that's been hit and miss. That's something that I've learned over time of like, mm -hmm. but I think preventing burnout for me is maintaining balance and a sense of fulfillment outside of work. And it's so easy for me to find fulfillment within my work mm -hmm. and not outside my work. And so having people support me and, and help me enjoy life and living that's not connected to just producing and creating and, 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 and working is really, really important to me. And then obviously, you know, people believing that I can do things like people being like, yeah, start an Instagram page before, you know, text Instagram or text based posts were really a thing. And so just having people really believe that you can do it and, um, was really huge. And then learning to delegate a little bit at work, um, you know, depending if it's one project. And so I'm delegating with that or someone who constantly works for me. Um, it, it's just like, letting go of the grip it's, it's still a oh, work yes. in progress <laughs> but you can't I really realize I can't do it yeah. alone um and yeah. either you have to kind of stop your growth and keep where you're at or you need to release and and get other people to help you so you know different projects I work on I work with different people and and that's my support so when I'm writing a book I have editors and when I'm and that's that's what I learned I was like okay I need these things <laughs> and that's great mm -hmm. Amazing. So I would stay with the letting go <laughs> and let you go. Uh, and I really want to thank you. It was just an amazing conversation and your honesty so is just beautiful. <laughs> thank <laughs> you so much for having me. That's awesome. You have just heard the story of Sara Kuburic, an existential psychotherapist, writer, consultant and columnist for USA Today. She's often known as the Millennial Therapist, a title she inherited as a result of her Instagram account, where she shared tips and content to normalize human experience and encourage self-reflection. If you want to connect with her, you can find her on Instagram as at millennial.therapist and read more in-depth about her work on www.sarah-kuburic.com. Thank you for joining me on this journey and if you like these stories please share, like and subscribe so that they can reach more curious individuals. Mm -hmm.